Welcome back to the City on a Hill podcast. In an effort to tap into City on a Hill's pillar of formation, Father Mattingly has decided he will record and share his Sunday homilies. These will be shared on random intervals in addition to the stories being shared weekly. We hope that you will learn at least something from today's homily. Today's the great feast of the Epiphany. Traditionally, the Epiphany commemorates three distinct moments in the life of our Lord. Uh, The one that obviously comes to mind first and sort of foremost among those three events is the visit of the three Magi from the East to come and adore the Christ child. But Epiphany, which means manifestation, also refers to two other events in the life of our Lord in which who he was, his identity as God and man was manifest to the world. One of those was his baptism in the Jordan, when his father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And the other is the wedding feast at Cana, when he works his first public miracle, thereby demonstrating his divine power, his divinity. So in the texts, especially of the divine office, the liturgy of the hours throughout today, you'll also find references to those other two events in the life of our Lord, in addition to the visit of the Magi. Focusing though on the visit of the Magi, this is a very important moment for the fulfillment of a very significant theme in the Old Testament. So throughout the Old Testament, the Lord in planning redemption chose to form a people for himself, the people Israel, from which would be born the Savior. And that this people which is sort of a small percentage of all the peoples throughout the entire world at the time the Lord chose them, this people would be tasked with being, as we hear often in the Old Testament, a light to the nations. Very common phrase. We heard it in our responsorial psalm today that Israel was chosen not just to be a people that sort of, I don't know, collected this sort of special status of being God's chosen people and didn't do anything with it, but that they were chosen by God for the sake of being a light to the nations. Together, all of the nations of the world into union with the Father. And so when the Magi come and adore the Christ child, this is the very first instance of the Savior being manifest to somebody outside of the people of Israel. Of the Savior being manifest to the nations, so to speak. And it's a sign of the will of God, that he wants to gather all people in the entire world to himself. In theology, we call this God's universal salvific will. St. Paul describes it like this in his first letter to Timothy. He says, God desires that all should be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Very simple. God desires that all should be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. This is very much in contrast, for example, to hardcore Calvinism. Any of you who might be familiar with that sort of strain of Christianity where they believe in what's called double predestination, where God predestines certain people, whether or not they will it or not, to heaven, and he destines a whole other group of people to hell. And nobody has any sort of control. Their free will doesn't matter in in the end. God decides where people go, whether to one or the other. There's nothing we can do about it. 
This is not what we believe as Catholics. We claim what St. Paul said here, that God desires all to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And when we look at the Magi, the instrument, you might say, that God used to bring them to an encounter with the Christ child was a star. From that point until the end of time, after Jesus ascends into heaven until the end of time, we now have to be the instrument to bring people to an encounter with the Lord. We know this from the end of our Lord's life. Right before he ascends into heaven, he issues what is known as the Great Commission. He tells the apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. He used a star to bring the Magi to adore the Lord. He wants to use you and I to bring the rest of the world to come and adore the Lord. That is our task as believers. 2,000 years ago, to make another parallel, our Lord was, we say, manifest in the flesh. Right? God manifested himself to the world in the flesh. After Jesus ascended back to his Father in heaven, he chose a myriad of different ways to continue manifesting himself to the world. From that moment of the ascension until the end of time, our Lord has chosen a variety of significant ways to continue manifesting himself to the world. Throughout his public life, he made promises at different points in time that he would remain with his disciples in different ways, that he would be manifest in different ways from that point until the end of time. And for our task of bringing the nations to come and adore the Lord, it's very important for us to know what these very specific ways are that Jesus promised to manifest himself from that point until the end of time. Because if we don't know where those places are, you might call them places of encountering the Lord, if we don't know where those are, we're going to sort of fumble around in our efforts to bring other people to come and adore the Lord. We'll be sort of just kind of floundering, not really knowing what we're doing. We need to know where Jesus promised to manifest himself in significant ways so that we can bring people to that place. Just like the star brought the wise men to a specific place, they brought them to the manger to adore the Christ child. We need to know where the Bethlehems, so to speak, are today, where Jesus promised to remain with us to manifest himself. So I want to offer you five of those. There are more. (laughs) I won't tire you with the whole long list, but I'm going to give you five very significant places where Jesus said, okay, here's where I'm going to remain with you. Here's where I'm going to be manifest. The first of those, probably the most obvious, is in the Holy Eucharist. Right? There's no more significant and powerful place that God has chosen to remain with us than in the Holy Eucharist. Nothing else comes close. So when you are in the process of discerning, how do I lead this friend or this coworker or this neighbor or this family member to the Lord, the first thought that should pop into your mind is, well, maybe I can facilitate and lead them to an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist. Even for somebody who's not a believer, it can happen that the mere power 
of being present at the Mass and seeing our Lord hidden under the species of bread and wine, the moment of consecration, or, or bringing a friend to Eucharistic adoration, the mere power of that can cause in some people an instantaneous conversion, such as the power embedded in the Holy Eucharist. One of our seminarians actually studying for our diocese right now, this very thing happened to him when he was in college. He'd never, even though he grew up Catholic, he'd never been exposed, sadly, to Eucharistic adoration. And he goes on this retreat, his very last semester of college, there had an instantaneous realization, okay, <laughs> that is God, right? That is God there. Just this powerful grace that the Lord laid upon him in seeing him face to face in the Eucharist. So that's the first place of encounter, you might say, that we need to keep in mind in our efforts to bring others to know the Lord. Second place that our Lord promises to remain with us in a powerful way is where two or more believers are gathered together. Jesus promises where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In a very mysterious way, Jesus is manifest when there are more than one believer present in the same place, gathered together in his name. Uh, a few nights ago, I was at somebody's house for a little New Year's Eve gathering, and there was a, sort of a whole, a whole spectrum of people there, from people that were very committed uh, agnostics to a bunch of very committed Catholics and sort of everything in between. And I got into a conversation with a husband and wife who um, would call themselves agnostic. And um, the wife was saying that the host of the party, who's another young mother like herself, she met her sort of nearby in the neighborhood because her neighbor's at a, at a park where their kids were sort of playing together. And she said, oh yeah, Megan, you know, invited me, invited me into uh, to her home and, and my husband as well. And we started coming over and this is all just during, during COVID. And, and, um, and she said, you know, like before, before COVID happened, we would have called ourselves, you know, very committed agnostics. And now, I don't know, there's like, she said, there's something about sort of seeing the way that they live their family life and, and the joy they have. And, and also the, the articulate nature with which they describe their faith. They're able to explain things very well. She said, you know, I don't, I don't know so much how, <laughs> how committed uh, of, of agnostics that, that we would call ourselves at this point. You know, it's really sort of opened up our, our horizons a little bit. This is the power of inviting someone into a context in which there are multiple believers who really love the Lord. This can make a profound impact on someone. So when you're striving to bring someone to know the Lord, think of that as an opportunity as well. Can I invite them to come spend time with my spouse and I? Can I invite them to come spend time with my family, with a group of my friends, so that they can see what real Christian love looks like, what real faith looks like? The third place is Scripture. This is a quote from the Second Vatican Council's document on divine revelation called De Verbum. It says this, In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Beautiful. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Many of you are probably familiar with the apostolic group Focus that does mission work on college campuses. They're sort of bread and butter that they do in trying to bring students to an encounter with the Lord is Bible studies. 
Obviously, this is very common in the Protestant world, becoming more common in the Catholic world. But they utilize the last thing we mentioned, where two or more believers are gathered, in conjunction with the power of Scripture, to hopefully facilitate someone having an encounter with Christ. It's very effective. Tens of thousands of students over the last 20 years have come to meet the Lord for the first time in their life in a significant way through the scriptures. As believers, we need to have enough knowledge of the Bible to be able, with somebody who is not a believer, to sit down and say, let's, let's take a look at this gospel passage. Let's, let's take a look at, at the person of Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me open up right here to this passage where it goes through his passion, death, and resurrection. Let's just kind of read this together. Good question to ask yourself, am I familiar enough <laughs> with the Gospels that I could, I could open it up and say, oh yeah, in Matthew's Gospel, the Passion narrative starts in chapter 21 and goes all the way to the end in chapter 28, right? Or in John's Gospel, I know the Last Supper takes up four whole chapters from 13 to 17, and I can just open up any point in there and guide them through one of the most significant parts of our Lord's life. Right? Are we familiar enough with Scripture to use it as the powerful tool that it is to introduce somebody else to the Lord. If we're not, maybe a good New Year's resolution would be to get familiar with the Bible. That there's power there to introduce somebody to the Lord. The fourth place that the Lord promised to stay with us is in the living teaching office of the church, what we call the magisterium. So, when the Lord sent out the 72 disciples, kind of in the middle of his public ministry, he told them something very interesting. He said, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So what he was telling them is that I speak in an authoritative way through you. When you teach in my name, I'm teaching through you. And this promise will endure till the end of time, that the Lord speaks through his bride, the church, when she offers teachings in an authoritative manner on faith and morals. So when you're walking with someone, when you're trying to bring them to encounter with the Lord, they can find him in the definitive teachings of the church. This was part of the beginning of my conversion in high school. I was introduced to this teaching and that teaching and this teaching and that teaching, and they all started to fit together and make sense. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> the church has all of the most compelling and logical and true answers for who the human person is, what our purpose in life is, etc., etc. Right? Knowing the teachings of the church and being able to bring someone to that can be very powerful. And I would tell you, this is my own humble opinion, I think two areas of church teaching that if you know them well, the world is desperate to hear and can be extremely powerful. The first of them is understanding how the church sees the human person, right? In our day and age, most kind of lies that are out there have to do with the human person, not having a clue as to what the human person is, that we're a body-soul composite, we're not like a, a soul trapped in a body, we're a, we're a composite of the two, that we have a will that is designed for goodness, right? If we're not choosing goodness, moral goodness and otherwise, start our life, our life is gonna be crippled and we're not gonna be fulfilled. 
Our intellect is made for truth, right? Every human being longs for truth, even if they would claim a relativist position on something. And knowing the human person as a complementary combination of male and female, that's probably the biggest one that's misunderstood and gotten wrong in our society today. If we're able, and this is why, by the way, John Paul II's theology of the body is so significant for our current culture. If we can articulate a compelling vision of the human person to somebody, that can be extremely liberating for them, right? Because the world tells them that they can design or manufacture their own person, that who they are is not something given and received from God, that they can just sort of make up whatever they want about themselves. It can be very liberating if you're able in a compelling way to convince them that who they are is wonderful and that it's given by God and that they should respect the way that they were made. If you can explain that to someone, it will go a long way. The second thing I think our world is desperate to hear is a narrative for understanding where they've come from and where they're going. Lots of people, especially the younger generations, are just drifting aimlessly through life from one temporary pleasure to the next with no purpose. And if you can, tell, if you can give them a compelling storyline, this is where you've come from, my friend. You've come from the heart of God the Father who made you for a relationship with Him that was ruined by our first parents with sin and by your own personal sin. But good news, Jesus Christ came to heal that and he invites you to be healed if you accept him in faith and choose to become a part of the church that he established. And he's destined you to live with him forever in heaven. Right? You anchor them in the past. This is your identity. This is where you come from. And then you point them towards the future. This is your destiny. Nothing less than eternal, perfect happiness with God forever. Right? A much more compelling vision than aimlessly drifting from temporary pleasure to temporary pleasure. If, you can art, if we can articulate that to people, we can bring souls into union with Christ and his church. Very, very important. The teachings of the church have power as a place of encounter with the Lord. The, last, the fifth and last place I'll offer to you today is to encounter Christ in the poor and the suffering. Throughout his life, Jesus identified in a special way with those who were poor or those who were suffering. Right? In Matthew 25, when he's going through the whole long thing of, you know, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me a drink, etc.? At the end of that, he says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these least of my brethren, you did it to me. You did it to me. Right? He identifies personally with those who are poor and suffering. This is why mission trips can often be very powerful for people to encounter Christ in the poor. And I would, I would make the argument that for us as believers, we should have some kind of consistent contact with the poor or the suffering. This has been a hallmark of Christianity from the very first years. Christians were always known for their love for the poor and the suffering. We should have consistent contact with them. When we do, we can invite somebody who doesn't know Christ to come with us as we encounter him in the poor, and they can be transformed by that in a significant way. This is the whole charism of Mother Teresa's religious order. She says, to see the face of Jesus in the poor. That's the whole point of the missionaries of charity, to see the face of Jesus in the poor every day. And we 
can encounter him there as well. So to conclude, we we come and see the Magi adoring the Lord, the first example of those outside the people of Israel coming to adore God. We're called to be stars today, guiding people to an encounter with the Lord. I'll leave you with a sort of twist the knife quote from Jose Maria. If you're familiar with his writings, he often sticks the knife in and then he turns it a little bit <laughs> just, to, uh, just to challenge us. And um, I flipped to the passage in The Way, which is his book of little points uh, before this weekend in, in a section on, on the apostolate. And uh, this one caught my attention. He said, yours is only a small love if you are not zealous for the salvation of all souls. Yours is only a poor love if you are not eager to inflame other apostles with your madness. Great words. <laughs> so the question for you and I in this upcoming calendar year is, is what are you going to do? What am I going to do uh, to come as the Lord desires and help him cast fire upon the earth? City on a Hill's mission is to be the community that inspires and forms our generation to be saints. We hope that today's homily offered some formation for you that will help you pursue sainthood. Please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes or leaving a review if you enjoy the podcast so that it becomes more easily findable for other young adults.